Hello, I'm Carol Off. Good evening, I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens. Carol Off will co-host her final episode of CBC Radio's As It Happens on Friday, February 25th. After an estimated 25,000 interviews, the former foreign correspondent leaves the show as its longest-serving host to move on to other projects. We're pleased to welcome Carol to this episode of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast, where the venerable host talks about everything from her early influences and favorite interviews to regaining trust in media. Hello, my name is Carol Off, and I am the co-host of CBC Radio evening program called As It Happens. And I never thought I would stay for 16 years at As It Happens. I never thought I would ever work at As It Happens. When I was a university student, Back in the 70s, yes, the 70s, I was, as many young people are, bored with the AM radio that was on and switching around the dial, which we had at those times, the dial, and trying to find something different. It was the music. Yeah, we got, I got my songs, but I got too many commercials and looking for something different. And I came across something that blew my mind. What it was, was the CBC. <laughs> and we never listened to the, the CBC at home at, when I was growing up. We listened to CFPL radio in London, Ontario. And that was our radio station. And it was, it was on all the time. So it never occurred to me that there was anything else. So this day I was ironing a shirt and switching the dial. And I found something and it was called as it happens and there was a woman named Barbara from and she was doing interviews and I was gobsmacked this woman was asking these tough questions grilling some guy nailing his feet to the floor trying to and she was cheeky and she was irreverent and she was hard and I I I, I just couldn't get enough or whatever this was I couldn't get enough of this thing and I started to listen to CBC radio and all its different shows. If anyone had told me at that point that one day I would sit in that chair of that woman, Barbara from, I would have told them that they're insane. If you told me I was going to one day live on planet Mars, I would have said, yeah, I think that's a good possibility. If you said I was going to do what I've just done for 16 years, I would have laughed you off the planet because I could never imagine doing that. I was a university student. I got interested in journalism at, at Western University of Western Ontario, now Western, working for the Western Gazette newspaper and enjoying that, but never thinking that I was going to be a journalist. I had absolutely zero intentions of being a journalist. I was going to be a famous novelist <laughs> famous famous novelist or, or a famous poet either one whichever came first and i began to do journalism as a way of making money and earning an, a living while i was on route to becoming a famous novelist or poet and 
I tried everything to become that, and I was rejected constantly, but never rejected for any journalism that I ever did. And so the money, as small as it was, because I was a freelancer, but it paid the bills. So I continued to write articles for magazines like McLean's or do a lot of things for freelance for CBC Radio in the news department. Whatever I, can, I could get in the way of work, working in London, Ontario for the media that was there. And in the meantime, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, this journalism thing, I can write this article, I can do this and then get back to the business of becoming a famous writer. And so it went on for a long time. And then the time, the day that it clicked for me that uh, <laughs> that I was barking up the wrong tree, I had some piece of writing I had done about traveling in India and Pakistan. And I wrote it and submitted it to this arts magazine that I wanted to impress. And they said they would pay $50 for this. And so I submitted it and they said, yeah, well, it's not really very good, but you know, here's some suggestions to improve it. So I rewrote it and they said, oh my gosh, this is, they said, this is worse. This is getting worse. I kept rewriting this piece and they kept saying that, look, for $50, at some point you cut your losses, right? I said, okay, there's no point in doing this. I obviously can't impress this arts publication with my writing. So I gathered up all that article and I mailed it to McLean's magazine. And McLean said, yeah, we're going to publish this as it is. Is $500 okay? So $50 for this arts publication, $500 for this magazine. Okay, I figured this is what I am. I'm a guest, I'm a journalist. And then what I realized as time went on is that there was nothing, nothing that I could invent, nothing of, no product of my imagination that was as interesting as the real world. And so I just began to tell stories through journalism, through radio, and then uh, CBC Radio, and then uh, CBC Television as a correspondent, worked at the National, went around the world, traveled everywhere, saw extraordinary things, told stories from the farthest places you could imagine, met people that you couldn't, I couldn't believe how they lived, stories that I couldn't believe my ears when I heard them and got to tell those stories. And then eventually the call came to work on a program called As It Happens on CBC Radio, the very show that started me in this curiosity. And I then realized that this was the most extraordinary thing that you could travel around the world on the telephone and talk to people and hear stories that were so diverse you could call into the middle of an earthquake and people who were had their house just destroyed if you found them they would talk to you on the phone and say what was going on or you could call into uh, the middle of somebody's wedding and find out what was happening in that place and you could call into someone's farm where they're looking for a sheep. I mean, I kid you not, we, these are all stories. These are real things. And Or you could find a woman who was knitting sweaters for her chickens. Or you could find a, a man who had just removed a cockroach from his ear uh, after three days of pain. Or you could 
talk to somebody who had picked up the wrong kid at, at school and taken someone else's child home. You could and talk to people who were traveling around the world, people talking, talking to people who were going into outer space. It was 16 years of just phenomenal travel on a telephone. And uh, I realized what Barbara from had and what a privilege it was for her to do that job and what a privilege it's been for me to do that job, which I'm now going to depart from. Was it those stories that kept you in the chair for 16 years? Because you've said before that even when you first took the job, your friends were dubious that it was going to last because of all the globetrotting that you've been doing. And I thought that that was the case. My friend, friend, my friends told me, you're never going to be a, a house cat. <laughs> you're an alley cat. You have to be out there. You have to be out in that ferocious world. And I thought they were right. But I found that just sitting in that chair talking to people, it just took me to so many different places. And I can't believe what a privilege it was. So what's prompted your move away from as it happens? Why now? I think that it's, it's time to go. I think the people who've had, who sat in this chair before came to a point when they realized it was time to go. I've stayed longer than anyone else who's ever worked on that program. And I think at some point, these programs need fresh blood. They need, they need to be refreshed. They need other people to come and take it someplace else. And I've done everything that I could want to do on this program. I've been to so many different places and stories and adventures with people. And I've loved it all. But at some point, I, I have to move on and the show needs to move on. And so I think it's, uh, it was my idea. It was my entirely, they, don't, they do not want me to go in case anyone's wondering. <laughs> but it was for me just a time when I needed to go through another door and see what's on the other side. You're best known for your prolific interview style and being able to skirt, to skirt the line between empathy and tenacity and sometimes humor. Did that develop over time? And you mentioned Barbara Frum off the top. Was she one of your influences along the way? Barbara Frum was definitely an influence. I, but I, I found that in the first years when I was trying to figure out how to do these interviews and you have to do one after the other it, it, all day long, like there's just so many interviews and you'd have to, this kind of whiplash effect of going from being uh, talking to someone in a disaster zone and then having to have an accountability interview with a Canadian politician and then talking to somebody who took his, his, his donkey to court, moving around and not knowing what's going to happen. It is called As It Happens for a Reason and never knowing what was going to happen during the interview, how they'd respond. And so what I found is that I, I just developed this sort of quiver of arrows. And so whenever I was talking to someone and I said, I have no idea what to do with this. I have no idea what, what's the tone, what's the question. I would just say, I'm going to ask, how would Barbara Frum do this now? And that just as I would do that, I was thinking, okay, I'm in my Barbara Frum. I'm going to channel my inner Barbara Frum. How would Peter, Peter Zosky do this? How would Ted Sebastian, Tim Sebastian do this? How would Lyndon McIntyre do this? So whatever it was, whatever, whatever journalist I admired, I kept their arrow in my quiver. And so when I was in that moment, I didn't know what else to do. 
I would channel that person and say, yeah, that's how you would do it. And then find that tone and find that way to ask the question. And I just did that for so many years until I think I found my own tone and my own arrow to, to shoot at people. Do you have a top three in terms of stories you covered or favorite characters that you met along the way? Oh, good question. I, <laughs> I as I've sort of calculated, I've done 25,000 interviews on that program, but I actually do remember so many of them. And um, the ones that stand out for me, I think, are interviews I've done with Romeo Dallaire, the general, Canadian general, who I just admire so much. And he would just be so, he just so honest. He would just, you could go places with him and he would tell you things about what he saw and experienced in Rwanda that no one else would, would say. Another interview I'd say was with a woman named Barbara Winters, who we t- called, she was the, one of the first people to arrive when that soldier, Nathan Cirillo, had been on guard at the cenotaph that day when this, killer the shooter came and began to shoot the the cenotaph and shot him and killed him and then went on to the parliament buildings one of the most extraordinary days in Canadian politics and Canadian history and she was just walking to work and she walked through that square to this through the monument and she stopped to help him as the the medics were trying to keep him alive and she held his hand and she said to him All she could think was to say to him over and over again, you are loved, you are loved, what you are doing was so important. You have to know what that means. And she was a complete stranger. And, you know, her, I know her family appreciated that so much that someone was there to say, for him to hear the last words that he was loved. And uh, even now I'm getting teary thinking about it, but she profoundly affected me. Um, I love that interview. And then some other ones were just just funny, funny moments. People just being being hilarious. The woman I talked to on an airplane who was coming home, having just won the international laughing championship. And she ran me through her all of her different laughs that she had. And it was so infectious. You just had to. <laughs> everyone, you could not not help but but laugh with her she was so wonderful and as I mentioned there the, one of my favorite interviews was this lovely man who was sent by his wife to pick up his grandson at school and uh, brought him home and uh, gave him some cookies and milk and put him in front of the tv and then his wife came along and said who is that child in the living room <laughs> and she realized he realized that he'd picked up the wrong child and not only did he have the wrong child, but the, his, his child was missing and some other family was missing their child. And it took forever to sort out. I love those stories, you know. As you know, it's a very hard time for journalists to be able to just do their jobs right now. We're in a very difficult environment between the distrust in media and the freedom of information system that a lot of reporters are having to try to navigate. And I know you were involved with Canadian journalists for free expression for many years. Do you have any advice, particularly for those who are out in the field right now in the current climate for media? I think we're going to have to earn the trust back from 
our audiences, our readers, our listeners, our viewers. I think that they have come to mistrust us, not because we got things wrong. I don't think that that, that in some cases we did, obviously, we it, you can't help but get things wrong sometimes, but because we didn't, we didn't listen to them. We didn't tell their stories. I think so many people are affected by feeling that no one cares about their experiences. No one's listening to them. They're not represented in what they see and hear. Their views are not represented. And, uh, and I think that we've been, we've been very narrow in our uh, inclusion of what we consider a story and who's, who gets to tell the story. And so I think that it, it's, a long, it's a long road we're on to win that trust back, but we won't, can only earn it back if we broaden our interest, broaden our horizon as to who we should talk to, who we have to talk to, who we have to listen to, and and challenge them, of course, and question them. Not to, we're not going to get not to give sort of platforms or stages for people to say anything they want, but to have more more voices, a broader range of voices from the left, from the right, from people of color, um, people uh, from other countries, people who have just arrived, people who have been here forever. We, we just need to open ourselves up. And I think if we do, if we just open that, that, that space up and not, not be so much in our own echo chamber, I think that we can slowly regain the trust of people. Tell me about the stories you still want to tell. Can you talk about some of the special projects that you're going to be working on going forward? You know, I, I, I think that doing as it happens, every story I did was so short. We did six or eight minutes a story, which I guess for some people that's that's like a lifetime. You know, they never get to do that. But I, I want to go deeper into some stories. I want to be able to tell, to actually explore stories. The traveling, I don't want to do again because it's become too dangerous to be a journalist traveling. We used to be sort of a collateral damage. We are an accidental a casualty of war in the past. Now we're the target. And I, I don't want to return to that. But I do want to go back to a lot of people I've spoken to or a lot of stories I've told and and get a better understanding of the depth of that. Just just go deeper into that to better understanding, especially of newcomers, new Canadians, uh, the story of the other, as they people are always called, the uh, people who are arriving, people who are becoming part of the Canadian society and people who are needing to have a place to tell their stories. And I want to hear more of that. Is there a podcast in your future or maybe another book? I understand that you plan to spend more time in Cape Breton. Oh, uh, Cape Breton is kind of a second home, but my husband's a Cape Bretoner and they, they have to be with their people. <laughs> 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 so we have to go back to Cape Breton every year. Um, we have a house there. He has a boat. So yeah, that's a big part of it. Uh, and I go, and it's a great place for me to, to do writing. I, I don't have a book in me right now. I have to, well, I do. I have, that's a lot. I have many books in me. I just got to figure out if I have the energy for it. Right away to do a podcast, I think that there might be a podcast from a summer series that I do that I haven't quite figured out yet. But beyond that, I'm I'm just, you know that there's a, a wise woman that I listen to. She has her own site, and she says that you have to, uh, at some point, identify things that have served you well but no longer serve you, and let them go to make room for what comes next. 
without knowing what comes next. And I, I so I'm trying not to plug in the whole say, okay, I'm going to have this time. I'm going to do this. I got to schedule this. I have to have, I have to have this and this and this. I want to leave it open to see what does just come next and enjoy that flow of life that, you know, that I have had for all my life. I have a feeling the stories are going to find you. <laughs> uh, they usually do. I'll stay just riding on the subway in the morning and there's 12 stories right in front of you, you know. Is there a thought you'd like to close on? I guess the thought is that I think that we have to, when this pandemic, this wretched thing is over, I what I want to see is that that we can... Get back, get back to normal. No, I, I normal. Who knows what normal is? Normal. I don't know what that is anymore. I, I want to be able to be back in a place where we're all trying to do great work, where we're trying to achieve something, where we're trying to, 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 to where, where good enough is not good enough anymore. You know, where we just, where we're, where we have all these kids in school who are just getting through. They just, if they get through the day, the teacher's happy. And the teachers, they, they're not able to do their best work and we're not doing our best work. We're not doing best work as journalists. We're just doing whatever we have to do to get through. And so what I so much look forward to is a time when we can all just be just trying to do the best work we can and trying to strive, trying to uh, achieve something, trying to just be, do great things. And I, I just, I ache for that. I ache for that time when we can just have that feeling of, all this pent up energy and potential when it can finally be released into the system and we can see all these people and all these young people especially do great things. Thank you so much for joining us and for all the interviews over the years. Thank you so much, Connie. Take care. For those who don't know, that Kate Bretner that has Carol spending time on the East Coast is husband and Emmy-winning journalist Lyndon McIntyre, who is now retired from CBC's The Fifth Estate. On Friday, as it happens, we'll send Carol off with a special episode that will feature some of those favorite interview subjects she mentioned, including Romeo Dallaire. For Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast, I'm Connie Thiessen. Thanks for listening to Broadcast Dialogue. For more information about the podcast or to receive exclusive access to our weekly briefing about the Canadian media industry, visit us at broadcastdialogue.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, connect with us on LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter and SoundCloud. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.